Well, they don't know it yet, but part of membership is getting the Calvary tattoo, so we'll be taking care of that in, in room one. I hear uh, it comes off easy if you use a cheese grater, though, so if you go to another church. Well, good morning. Good to see you all again. It's been a while since I've been up here doing the message. There's been a lot of stuff that's gone on in all of our lives since then, and uh, so I'm happy to see you all again from this perspective, and I also thank you all for helping my wife and I out as we went through this month of uh, having our new baby. She's happy and healthy, and we were just very grateful for um, how much uh, Calvary showed their love to us, so thank you for that. Eventually, she'll be able to come in, though. So let me pray, and we'll get started on our message. Our Father and our God, we thank you for the great privilege of being able to come together to hear the word of our Creator, of the message that he has given to us and preserved for us over these 2,000 years since it was written. We acknowledge, Lord, that this is your living word, that it's your true word, that every word of God proves true. So I pray, Lord, that you would open our hearts, open our minds to receive, to understand, and to accept your word. We pray that your Holy Spirit would apply these truths to our heart. As always, Lord, I pray that whatever nonsense has come from my own imagination would be discerned and set aside, but whatever is true, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable that comes from your word would be taken to your heart. We pray this in the name of King Jesus. Amen. Well, the word of the Lord comes to us today from the book of Hebrews. I'll be continuing on with this series. It's uh, Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3b. That's the second half of, of verse 3 through verse 14, finishing out the uh, first chapter of Hebrews. So if you have your Bibles or your phones, please turn or scroll with me to Hebrews 1, 3 to 14. This is God's word for God's people. Verse 3b. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? This is the word of the Lord. Now, as we begin this passage, um, we see a theme which is continuing on from the opening verses of the book of Hebrews, which I covered previously. This is the theme of the supremacy of God's Son. 
In the first verses of the book of Hebrews, immediately and unmistakably declare to its readers that Jesus Christ is the final and ultimate revelation of God, and that Jesus Christ is the exact imprint of God and the radiance of the glory of God, that Jesus Christ is the creator and the sustainer of the world and everything in it, and that all things were created through him and for him. Jesus Christ is Lord. Jesus Christ is supreme. Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Jesus Christ is King. And in our passage today, the author of the book of Hebrews is now demonstrating the superiority of Jesus Christ by making a comparison of Jesus Christ with angels. And by making this comparison in the pages of Scripture, it's almost as if the author is making a doctrinal demonstration, whereas in the opening verses, 1 through 3, he was making a doctrinal assertion. In other words, in the first three verses of the book of Hebrews, the author was giving us facts about the supremacy of Christ. And now with this passage, he's showing us facts about the supremacy of Christ. And he's doing so by contrasting the Lord Jesus with angels. The question immediately arises, why angels? For most of us today, this might seem like an unusual tack to take. Uh, it's almost like a redundancy to hear the author say and labor on for 12 verses explaining how uh, Christ is superior to angels, because I would think most of us today, we, are, we already know that. What's the big deal with, uh, with the Christ-angels comparison? So why, why angels? Why did he use angels? Well, as I've said several times in the past in different messages that I've given, it's crucial when we're reading and interpreting the Bible to understand who the original hearers were. We need to understand who these people were and how they would have understood the message that's coming to them, what context they lived in, and how they would have interpreted it. Um, they, we would have had to understand how they received and how they understood the text. It's important to remember, and it deflates our egos a little bit, that the Bible was written for you as God's people, but it was not written to you. There's not one letter in the Bible that was written to 21st century Americans. It was preserved for us. It's God's word for God's people, as I've said, but there was an original audience. There were people that were living in particular places in particular times uh, who received these letters. We would call the book of Ephesians Ephesians because it was to the Ephesians. It was, there was a people living in a, a city called Ephesus. We will inevitably fail in our interpretation if we fail to understand God's trying, what God's trying to tell us in certain passages if we forget who these original people were. And one of these things we might fail to understand is what the big deal with the Christ-angel comparison actually is. And ask yourself truly and, and honestly as you're studying the Bible, um, if some of the passages that you're studying are either boring or confusing because you're failing to appreciate who this original audience was, if we're failing to appreciate the literary, the cultural, the historic context in which these books were written, you know, one reason the Revelation is so hard for modern, modern audiences to understand is because it's written in a literary genre that doesn't exist anymore. It was very popular at the time. It was also written to specific people, and it also made very specific references to the Old Testament. So somebody just picking up the Revelation and not taking into account these things is going to be confused as they read that book. More confused, rather. So what then 
is the contextual significance of the Christ-angel comparison. What's the big deal? Well, there are two big reasons why angels play such a big role in this passage, and I think both of these are good reasons to remember and to consider. We don't want to choose one over the other. It's more of both and rather than either or. And the first reason makes a lot of sense on the surface, and that is that in the time of the original readers of the Hebrews, there was an inordinate focus and fascination of angels among the Jewish people. These were people that just had um, they just watched Touched by an Angel endlessly, or bought all the angel books in the, at Barnes & Noble. Just an obsession with angels at this time. To put it another way, Jewish culture, the first century, angels were given a promotion, and they were exalted to a position higher than they ought to be. And they were, in some cases, even worshipped. One theologian uh, had this helpful bit to say. He says, Literature from the intertestamental period, obviously between the Old Testament and the New, uh, which is often called Second Temple Judaism, demonstrates an intense focus on angels. Some of this reflection was good, but it was also mixed with error. Many people in Israel considered angels to be both God's messengers and Israel's protectors. Many Jews looked at angels as those who would come as the army of God to rescue and vindicate the nation. Second Temple literature also attests to the rise of the notion of personal angels, or what we might call guardian angels. Due to this fascination with angels, the author of Hebrews, writing to a Jewish audience who was familiar with Second Temple literature, needed to recalibrate the theological understanding of his audience, particularly concerning Christ's relationship to angels. So again, in Second Temple Judaism, that is the, the cultural milieu that would have been in place when Jesus came uh, to the earth, angels were elevated to a place of worship and prominence that was inappropriate. And instead of being viewed as merely God's messengers and servants, they were raised to a place of reverence and awe where only God should be. And if you'll recall from previous messages in Hebrews, and I don't actually expect you to, that's what I'm going to tell you, uh, the original recipients, the original readers of the book of Hebrews when it was written were Christians who had come from Judaism and come from Ju uh, uh, Judaism's religious and cultural trappings. They were coming from the background of first century Judaism, just like most of you, all of you, all of you that I know are coming from the context of 21st century America with America's values, America's understandings. These were Jews who had recognized and embraced their Messiah, recognized that the Messiah had come, and they were now struggling to adjust to the Christ-centered life, while many of their Jewish brothers and sisters were rejecting them and rejecting Jesus the Messiah. So the author of Hebrews, therefore, finds it important to demonstrate to these Jewish Christians the superiority of Christ to angels. So if you live in an environment where you elevate angels above where they're supposed to be, it's going to be necessary for the author to put angels back in their place, so to speak, and put Christ in his place. And this is uh, one reason why we see the angel-Christ comparison. And again, I think it's a, a good one, it's an important one, and, and it's a legitimate reason but it's also not the most important reason why the author, under the influence and supervision of the Holy Spirit, makes the Christ-angel comparison. The second reason also has to do with the Jewish context, 
but it plays a much bigger part in the story of Hebrews and also the story of all of redemptive revelation itself. The second reason is that angels were understood as the beings who delivered the Mosaic covenant to the Israelites at Sinai. Remember in Exodus when they received the law, when they heard God's voice, angels were understood as the ones who delivered the covenant to the Jews. So that is to say, in a manner of speaking, the uh, angels were the ones who handed God's law to the people and were therefore inextricably linked to the very identity of Judaism itself. Hebrews 2.2, just a little bit later in our book, says, the message declared by angels proved reliable. And in that verse, it's referring to the covenant given at Sinai. Acts 7.53 says, you received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Galatians 3.19 says, why the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. In all three of these passages from scripture, the recipients or the audience of the person speaking were, were Jews who understood God's law as given through angels with Moses acting as the intermediary. So for a Jewish audience, the place of angels was extremely important because angels, again, they were the ones recognized as the ones who had delivered God's law to the people. Tom Schreiner, in his commentary on Hebrews, says, the angels were the mediators of the Mosaic Covenant. In stressing the son's superiority to the angels, the author features Jesus' supremacy over the Mosaic Law and the Sinai Covenant. Hence, the reference to the angels ties into one of the central themes of the letter. The readers should not transfer their allegiance to the law mediated by angels. <clears throat> Again, recall the temptation for these folks was to go back to practicing Judaism. They had come from a Jewish background. Their friends were Jewish. Their, their, their whole uh, worship life was in the synagogues, and they had come from that to follow Christ. It had cost them everything. And we talked about that in previous messages, how the temptation comes when you recognize how much Christ costs you is to go back to your old life. So the author is saying, look, Jesus is superior to the old covenant. The old covenant you want to go back to is less than Jesus that you have now. And he stresses that with this angel-Christ comparison. The author of Hebrews is saying that something new has come. More specifically, someone new has come, someone superior to the covenant given at Sinai. He's not just comparing angels to Christ. He's comparing the new covenant that Christ mediates with the old covenant put in place through angels. To have Christ is to have something better, to have something greater than could be had under the old covenant. The old covenant served its purpose. It had a purpose and it served it. And now the Messiah has come and instituted in his own blood a new superior covenant. Hebrews 3.3, again later in the same book, says, Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. So you're doing this comparison between Jesus and Moses, Jesus representing the one who gives the new covenant, Moses representing the one who gives the old covenant. This is the difference between falling water and Frank Lloyd Wright. 
Falling water is only famous because Frank Lloyd Wright designed it and built it. Jesus made Moses. Jesus is worthy of more glory than Moses. The covenant that Jesus brings is, is better than the one Moses gave. Hebrews chapter 8, verses 6, 7, and 13 say, But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. The Messiah has come. That is profound. That is enormous to, to Judaism and to the whole world. And the author in Hebrews chapter 8, which I just read, is saying, the old covenant served its purpose, but, but like a bullet, it's been spent. It's, it's, it's done what it was supposed to do, and now it's obsolete because Christ has come. The Messiah has come, and he's ushered in the new covenant. The last days is what Scripture calls it. So to return to our original question and to summarize, why compare Christ with angels in, in all these verses? Well, first... Because the author of Hebrews wants to show these Jewish Christians that Christ is greater and these created messengers, uh, than these created messengers who should not be elevated to positions of glory God never gave them. And second, to demonstrate to a Jewish Christian audience that Christ and the new covenant that he mediates is superior to the covenant given at Sinai. Christ is superior to angels. Christ is superior to Moses. In Christ, we have a superior covenant. In Christ, we have a superior revelation. In Christ, we have a superior mediator. And Christians should not allow themselves to be tempted to go back to the old life, to go back to the death and decay. And for the first century audience reading this book, that would have been to go back to Judaism. But all of you, if you're truly in Christ, have left an old life and come to a new life. Pastor Jim has talked about the new man. And if you're a follower in Christ, you know what that's like. You think of your old self and the new self, and you recognize that you, you almost feel spiritually schizophrenic or multiple personalities. You're like, why am I still living with myself, with this old person? But you recognize there was an old and a new. And the temptation very often when, when following Christ gets hard is to want to go back want to go back before that was persecution, to go back before you had to face all these things. Again, you think in, in Muslim countries like Pakistan or Saudi Arabia, the very worst sin in Islam is called shirk. That's apostatizing. It's leaving Islam. So if you are a Muslim and you become a Christian, you give up absolutely everything. You've committed the greatest sin in your culture. In some of these places, it's your relative's duty to kill you. That's a real cost for Christ. In the United States, it isn't as big of a cost. It's mostly embarrassment and loss of social status, but there's a cost. And the question is, is what we're gaining better than what, we, what we're losing? And that was the question for these as well. In Christ, the only thing we lose truly is our curse. And in Christ, in, we gain everything. And this is why the author compares Christ to angels. But the author doesn't ask the readers to just take his word for it. He, he calls in a witness, so to speak. Verse 5 of our passage begins with, 
For to which of the angels did God ever say? The author's chief witness to the supremacy of Christ in all things is God himself. The author turns to Almighty God as the key witness. God himself has spoken concerning his Son. And what higher authority can you appeal to? And what greater wisdom and knowledge can we appeal to? If you want to know truly who Jesus is and what he has done, who can state it better or with more weight than God the Father? And what does God the Father say concerning the Lord Jesus? Verse 5 again. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all God's angels worship him. Verse 8. Of the son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the, kingdom of your, is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will wear out like a garment, like a robe you will roll them, roll them up. Like a garment they will be changed, but you are the same, and your years have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The God makes six astounding statements about Jesus Christ in these verses. And it's amazing to reinforce this um, by reading each of these statements individually, but while adding the phrase God says about Jesus before it. Because again, recall verse 5 says, which of the angels did God ever say? So of all these quotes that you're reading, it's God saying about Christ. So it was, it's helpful, it was helpful for me to, um, to read each of these statements individually and then add God says about Jesus in front of it. So for example, God says about Jesus, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. God says about Jesus, you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. So after statements like these from God the Father, can there really remain any doubt in our minds about the supremacy of Christ in all things. God himself calls Jesus Lord in verse 10. And after saying that, can we ever think of Christ as anything less glorious and supreme and, or even less than superior ever again? Can we ever dare to think of Jesus Christ as just some teacher from Galilee? or just another misunderstood prophet who has been misrepresented by the writers of history. Now, these six statements that we find in Scripture are from God the Father are all uh, passages that have been taken from the Old Testament. Four of them are quotes from the Psalms. One of them is from 2 Samuel, and one of them is from Deuteronomy. And where these quotes come from is significant because they represent passages from the three major divisions of the Hebrew Bible, which are the, uh, the law, the prophets, and the Psalms. And if you open up your Old Testament, um, it's, it's the what the Hebrew Bible was, the Tanakh, they called it. And the Hebrew Bible was arranged differently. They, um, they would have 
less number of books than ours, but that's because they bunched a couple together, um, like they wouldn't have all the minor prophets individually. Uh, they divided their Bible into these three major sections called the Law, the Prophets, and the Psalms. Uh, sometimes you'll see the Psalms referred to as the writings, and sometimes the entire Old Testament is referred to as the Law, like it is in Psalm 19, where the author is giving these statements about God's law being perfect, the testimony of the law is sure. Um, now, this is all very interesting, but what's the point? Uh, it's, I'm just not interested in just giving you empty facts. Uh, the point is, which we can see in Luke 24, 44, where Jesus tells his disciples, these are words, the words I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me and the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. He's referring to the three divisions of the Hebrew Bible. Everything written about me in the Bible must be fulfilled. So Jesus, using the Hebrew division of the Old Testament, tells his disciples that the whole Bible is about him, that he is the hero of the story, that he is the purpose of it all. And again, reflects uh, Colossians 1.16, all things were created through him and for him. As all things were created through Christ and for Christ. All things were created for Christ. The author of Hebrews, in using these six statements, is showing his Jewish Christian readers what Jesus told his disciples. The whole Bible testifies to the supremacy of God's Son, and all things were created through him and for him. God pronounces the glory and the superiority of his son. God declares a consistent message, the supremacy of Jesus Christ and Christ as the means and the end, the purpose of creation. Verse 5, for to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you? Or again, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. These are two quotes from the Old Testament. The first one, Psalm 2-7. The second one is 2 Samuel 7-14. And they're verses about a king, verses about a ruler. In Psalm 2, God speaks of his anointed one. The Hebrew for anointed one is Mashiach. We pronounce it Messiah. And this Psalm declares all the nations and all the earth will serve this Messiah. The whole world forever is going to serve the anointed one. This is a psalm which speaks of the Messiah who will come in authority and come in judgment to rule the whole earth. Hebrews 1.5 says this Messiah is the Lord Jesus. 2 Samuel 7.14, the other part of that quote, is from a passage where God is making a promise to King David that David will have an heir on the throne uh, whose kingdom will never end. It will be established forever. Hebrews 1.5 says that this royal heir of David who will rule his kingdom forever is the Lord Jesus Christ. In this verse, uh, in uh, Hebrews 1.5, God declares Jesus to be both the Messiah and the eternal king. Charles Spurgeon, um, I love reading his sermons because they're 
they're, they're basically devotions. You know, I, you can go through a Charles Spurgeon book and just kind of read it devotionally. So he had this quote on King Jesus when he was doing a sermon on Hebrews. He says, Jesus is the lawful monarch of all things that exist. His rule is founded and right. Its law is right. Its result is right. Our king is no usurper and no oppressor. Even when he shall break his enemies with a rod of iron, he will do no one wrong. His vengeance and his grace are both in conformity with justice. Hence, we trust him without suspicion. He cannot err. No affliction is too severe, for he sends it. No judgment is too harsh, for he ordains it. O oh, blessed hands of Jesus, the reigning power is safe with you. All the just rejoice in the government of the king who reigns in righteousness. I love that line. O oh, blessed hands of Jesus. Now, all who hear these truths of Jesus should praise him for who he is. We're just saying, this is who our Lord Jesus is. He is the Messiah. He is the king whose kingdom will rule forever and ever. And the author of Hebrews believes this should inspire worship. Verse 6 of our passage says, and again, when he, that being God the Father, brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. We think immediately of the shepherds when the angels appeared to them and said that the, behold, a Savior is born among you who will, who will rule, and they, they, they praise and they're, they're worshiping God. In this, this verse, God commands the angels to worship Christ. Now, do people tempted to worship angels instead of Christ, the scripture shows that God tells the angels to worship Jesus because King Jesus is superior to the angels. He's saying, oh, you want to elevate these angels more highly than you ought to? Well, God tells them to worship Jesus, so they're, they're obviously they're subordinate to King Jesus. This quote, let all God's angels worship him, is the author of Hebrews is quoting from the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the, of the Old Testament. So the wording is a little bit different than if you looked up the passage. It's in Deuteronomy. But this passage from Deuteronomy, um, the hymn where it says all God's angels worship him is referring to Yahweh. And the author of Hebrews now says this is Jesus Christ. Hebrews 1.6 declares Jesus Christ and Yahweh to be one and the same. Very God of very God. But that's the kind of statement that makes you want to take your shoes off because you're standing on holy ground. Or do you think that the scripture just now says that Jesus Christ and Yahweh are the same being? Moreover, that it's God saying about Jesus, let all God's angels worship Yahweh. So what do we have so far? In proclaiming the superiority of Jesus Christ over angels, the author of Hebrews says that Jesus Christ is the long-awaited Messiah, the long-awaited King of the Jews, whose kingdom will be established over the whole earth and will never end, and that King Jesus Christ is none other than Yahweh himself come in the flesh. So the question is immediately put forth to these Jewish Christian readers. Do you really think you want to go back to the lives that you led before Christ? Do you really think that you're going to be able to serve Yahweh by denying Yahweh? Christ's kingdom is never going to end. It will continue forever. 
Again, Tom Schreiner puts it this way. The supremacy of Jesus as the Son is the theme of this section. Jesus' sonship is tied to his being the Davidic king and ruler over the world. The divinity and the humanity of the Son are both central to the argument. He rules as the Davidic king and as one who is fully divine. The angels worshipped him when he was raised from the dead and they exalted. And as God, he rules over all. Indeed, the Son is the eternal and unchanging creator. By way of contrast, angels are servants carrying out God's will. Since the Son is superior to angels, since he is divine and rules over all, why would the readers consider returning to the Mosaic law mediated by angels? It's an important question, and it's the question that the author is putting to these Jewish Christians. You have Christ. Christ is the king you've been waiting for. Christ is the Messiah you've been waiting for. Christ is the God you have served since the time of Abraham. Why would you want to go back to the, the re religious trappings that have, that have expired? They've served their purpose, and now we've moved on, moved forward, rather. And the question is, why would we? If all of this is true about Jesus Christ, and it is because it's God's word speaking to us, why would we ever want to go back? Why would we ever want to go back to the death that we lived in before? Why would we want to go back to uh, C.S. Lewis's words of making mud pies in the gutter when we were offered the opportunity for the holiday at the sea? Let's continue. Verse 8 of our passage, God says about Jesus, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Now, this quote is from Psalm 45 and shows us, again, God calling Jesus God and declaring that the divine king will rule in righteousness and forever and ever. This passage is kind of an, of an underlining. It's a, it's a repetition in order to reinforce to us the point that's trying to be made here. God is calling Jesus God and saying that Jesus will rule in a kingdom that will never come to an end. Following this, verses 10 through 12 of our passage say, You, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years have no end. Now, this passage is from Psalm 102. And like the Deuteronomy quote, it's originally referring to Yahweh. But again, here in Hebrews, God is applying it to his son, Jesus Christ. Again, King Jesus is declared by God to be the eternal Lord who created the heavens and the earth. And it says the universe will perish, but King Jesus will remain. King Jesus, in the end, will roll up the universe like a robe, and he will remake the creation. But he himself will never change, because he is the eternal God. And when we come to understand why angels were used to contrast with the Lord Jesus Christ and to highlight his glory, his attributes, his, his divinity, and his nature. We also come to understand why Christ is superior to any other thing in creation. You've heard this example before. 
but you, uh, in order to get a good glimpse at a diamond, you know, the jeweler puts it on black velvet. He has the, the, the contrast just to see how perfect and beautiful the stone is. It's similar with these angels. The, the angels are functioning as the black cloth for the jeweler to show, just to highlight just how, how, how glorious and how supreme Christ is compared to these other beings. King Jesus is superior to any other philosophy or religion or ideology that we might be inclined to run to for comfort or meaning or salvation. Even as Christians, we keep coming across some new thing that we think is going to give us the security that we're craving in this life, some new thing that's going to comfort us or give us purpose or, or uh, give us the salvation. King Jesus is superior to any other person, place, or thing to which we might look for for wisdom, for security, or fulfillment. And I don't know about you, but uh, when you, I don't know whether you've studied philosophy much or, or not, but the more you read scripture and then when you read philosophy, you recognize how confused people become when they, say, they start from the assumption that God doesn't exist. So that you want to dismiss the ultimate wisdom, the ultimate rational principle of the universe, and then try to figure life out by that. It's kind of like that example where it says, uh, you know, the, the monkeys in a room long enough will type Shakespeare. It's not going to happen. They're just going to make garbage until forever. And we see this. We look for things outside of Christ for wisdom, security, or fulfillment. But really, can you take anything in all of the universe and hold it up in comparison with the Lord Jesus Christ and what we've just learned about him today and still honestly think that Christ isn't superior, that Christ isn't worth devoting your entire life to. Many years ago, I had friends who were preparing to go on mission to Iraq, to northern Iraq, to the Kurds. They're going to live there. They're going to take their uh, three-month-old baby with them. And they were talking to some Christians at a church where they were trying to get funding. And there was a guy there who said, that's so strange. He's like, what's strange about that? What's strange about wanting these people to know the glorious risen Lord Jesus Christ? That's what we should all be doing. How is it strange that you get so full, so impassioned about what we're hearing right now where you want to go tell everybody you know about it? You go on Facebook, you know what people value most. You go out and you read the papers, you know what people value most. What do Christians value most? Do we talk about the Lord Jesus in the same way that we talk about the Super Bowl? I didn't know that was happening today until this morning. <laughs> I don't watch sports ball. I ran track, but where, where's your priority? What are you devoting your life to? When we come to understand more of Christ Jesus, we come to understand that it is toward Christ-likeness that we are growing and striving in our Christian walk. The Bible says that God foreknew you and predestined you to be conformed to the image of his Son. That's what it is. God is conforming us to the image of Jesus Christ. And it is toward Jesus Christ himself who we will see for ourselves with our own eyes that we are journeying in this life. That's where this road is leading. We're all going to stand before him someday. We will see him. So how should you then live? And how should the first readers of Hebrews have responded to the truths that they read or heard from this passage? You want to go back to Egypt? You want to go back to bondage and slavery before you met Christ? You want to go back to 
killing lambs to atone for your sin? How should they have thought about angels after this? Look at verse 14, referring to angels. Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? I felt like the, the last, last little note in the passage before he moves on to chapter 2. Aren't, aren't angels just ministering spirits? In Scripture, when there is a, an angelic appearance, the human being who's witnessing the angel most frequently falls down in terror uh, or falls down and attempts to worship the angel. Strangely, but e even the Apostle John, who had seen Christ on the Mount of Transfiguration, fell down and began to worship an angel in the book of Revelation because their appearances are stunning. Their power is great. But verse 14 says they are ministering spirits sent by God to serve for the sake of God's elect. They're sent by God to serve for the sake of Christians, for the sake of imperfect, struggling people with cold faith, cold hearts, and cold prayers. When God's created order, it's angels who serve for our sake. So we don't elevate them to a place where only the Lord Jesus should be. The Bible even says that in the end, we are going to be judging angels. So why on earth, on the basis of all these truths, would a believer ever be tempted to raise them in lower Christ? That passage where it talks about uh, us judging angels is an interesting passage too. It's a little bit tangential, but I think it, I think it does have some relevance. Paul is talking to Christians, and he's saying, you folks ought to be able to live together harmoniously. He's talking about lawsuits. He's like, why are, you, why are you suing each other? Why are you treating each other wrongly? Like, don't you know you're going to judge angels? If you're going to do that, can't you handle this? Can't you live in unity together if you're going to be judging angels? It's living the Christian life. It's living the life of following King Jesus. The book of Hebrews will continue to demonstrate the superiority of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's, that's what the whole book is about. But even if it ended at chapter 1, we would be left with enough to recognize the greatness and the glory of King Jesus. So the question is put to us, put to you, what in your life needs to be held up and compared with Christ to see that Christ is superior and fully deserving of your trust, your hope, and your worship? And again, I've used this example before, and it's not exactly a, a sanctified illustration, but if you're considering what you want to put all of your chips on, you should be all in for Christ. You shouldn't hold anything back in case you, you lose all of your, your money. Go all in for Jesus, because he's fully deserving of your truth, your hope, and your worship. So what are you currently elevating above the Lord Jesus Christ that needs to be cast down as from being an object of worship. What is elevated over Christ in your life right now? Angels, politics, health, money, counterfeit spirituality, drugs, alcohol, sex. What do you value more than Jesus Christ? What do you think is going to give you comfort, fulfillment, and sustain you over Jesus? The curious thing for the observer is the last seven years in this country, have loudly advertised and shown where people's worship and hopes really are. 
And we saw innumerable things over the last seven years that people cherished and adored over King Jesus and serving him. If there, was, if there was one good thing about COVID, and I don't know if there is, but if there was one good thing, is that through all of that crisis, is that it truly showed where, what people value most. It truly showed where your hope is. It truly showed where your priorities are. Was King Jesus in his glory, in his witness, in his body, prime to you? Prime to our culture, prime to our country? And if so, or if not, rather, what idols took his place? And what should our response to these truths about the Lord Jesus be? How should this moment onwards to the end of your life be shaped and changed by the truths of who the Lord Jesus Christ really is? I mean, we're all in church right now. We're going to do the last song, say a benevolence, and then we're all going to get up and start talking. We're going to go out to the community and to our normal lives again. And it's so easy truly, and I'm definitely guilty of this as well, to leave everything here. You get in your car and you're done with the church thing. But really, can, they, can you hear these truths? Can they land on your heart, so to speak, and you remain unchanged by them? And if so, what does that say? What does it say about me? I mean, I, I study this passage, and who's, who's, who's it damning first as I go through it? And I challenge you to read the whole first chapter of Hebrews again several times during this coming week and to pray over it and to pray for God the Holy Spirit to apply its truth to your heart. We say that word, it's, it's, I, just don't, I don't just want to understand these things, Lord. I want them to be true in my heart. I want to live like they are in my heart, to live like I, like I heard these and am changed by it. To pray that God would show you the ways your life ought to be changed by the risen king of the universe, our savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is with us this morning and until the end of the age. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, you've not minced your words today from your scriptures about the place that you hold the Lord Jesus Christ in your estimation. And I can't pray for anything greater, Lord, than that you would make these truths real to us as well. That you would drop the scales from our eyes. That you would break open our hard, cold hearts of stone. And that you, we would just be filled with the love and the passion for the Lord Jesus Christ. This is good news, Lord. This is amazing news. This is our God. This is the King we serve. So let us, Lord, love him, be so full of Jesus that people see it on our faces tomorrow. Just like Moses had to wear the veil, let people see something with us, Lord, see that we value Christ over all things. For it is in the name of King Jesus that we pray. Amen.